Brought to you by Leave the Ring Network. All boxing, no filter. Oh! It's another knockdown. He's not getting up, Jim. He get up. He's not getting up, Jim. He's not getting up. No, he's been knocked out. It's over. Mamma mia, he's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. AJ does it in style. Beaten down, hopeless, without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigondeaux quit. It's Fistionados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Wednesday, February 12th, and this is the Fistionados podcast on the Leave It in the Ring radio network. I'm your host, Stephen Murkowski, former HBO Sports Marketing Executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistinados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistinadospod. We are brought to you by Ring Magazine and ringtv.com. Big, long episode this week. I'm finally going to get to the Floyd Mayweather episode. Uh, which I'll go on and on about him. we got a lot of other stuff going on. There's a February 22nd fight, which I'll get to at the very end. Um, so let's just jump right into it. Let's And uh, quite frankly, in the review section, I have a lot to say about this uh, Thursday night Miami Super Bowl fight week DAZN card. Yes, we're going back that far. On Thursday, January 30th, during Super Bowl week from Miami and on DAZN, we had... Uh, Well, we had a lot of fights that were a lot of different things all wrapped up into one fight card. Let's just go through the results first. Demetrius Andre defeats Luke Keeler by KO9. Jake Paul beats uh, Anson Gibb by KO1. Jojo Diaz beats Tevin Farmer by close unanimous decision. And Murajan Akhmadaliev beats Danny Roman by unanimous decision. Again, I have a lot to say about this whole card. And then with each individual fight, let's start with the MJ Akhmadalia fight against Danny Roman. This was just a great fight, plain and simple. It shouldn't have been the first fight on the card. And, you know, look, this isn't going to be like fight of the year type fights, but this was the first A-level fight we've seen in 2020. Um, it could definitely be in sort of the top two tiers of, of, you know, top 15 fights of the year, especially if we have as many great fights this year as we had last year. MJ is quite a talent. I mean, his rise is extremely impressive. Danny Roman's a great fighter, too, and I'd love to see an eventual rematch here. Like, these guys have a style clash. It worked well. And, you know, look, this could be a really fun set of fights here, especially if you work TJ Doheny into this. Like, this is great stuff. I mean, as for Roman, give him a pay raise. Make a statement to fighters that if you're a title holder, or you have a you have unified, which he had done. If you have a unified title and you fight legit great opponents in the ring, especially when you don't have to, he could have dropped a belt. He could have dropped one of his belts, kept the other one, and just sort of fought easier competition. Danny Roman did not do that. You should give him a pay raise. Let him know if you take these kind of fights, you get rewarded. 
I think it's a really important part of what DAZN and Matchroom should be doing. If they want to have less stay busy fights at long odds, um, you know, they need to take actions and encourage these kind of fights. DAZN, and, and that's not a complainer of their overall schedule. I've said it before. Their volume is, in, is insane and they put on a lot of good fights. But, you know, this, we saw all this in one card. I mean, we'll get to the Andre fight later, but, you know, DAZN also should focus on this weight class a bit. I mean, the titles are spread out, but there's still lots of good fights to be made. Just bravo, great stuff. Let's go to the Farmer Diaz fight. Congrats to Jojo Diaz. He's one of those fighters. You know, if you've ever met him in person, like, you just got to root for him. Like, I did, a, you know, when I was doing Radio Rose for pay-per-view, I'd take him around. He'd be a guest. And he's just, like, this really nice guy with a sense of flair. And he's taken the necessary steps to get to the next level. He, now he's got a title and a weight class. Like, he can make some good money and probably have some good legacy fights. I thought going in that Farmer would outbox him, you know, if they do a rematch, that still remains a possibility, but the main talking point so far about this is the level of competition that Farmer's fought. You know, he didn't look great. He hasn't fought the greatest competition. Even, you know, he, and he looked great leading up to this, but he didn't look great in this fight, and a lot of people thought it was just because Jojo Diaz was really good, and it's the first time he's fought someone really good as a champ. You know, I don't think, you know, again, this isn't in the same category as what I just talked about. I don't think you need to give these guys a pay raise, but this was a great fight, and I'd love to see it again. Um, it's a good fight. I'll say that. A, a, this is a B-plus fight. Like, that cut, too, was, was insane. If these were the two fights on the fight card, this would have been an awesome, awesome fight card. But let's move on to the YouTube fight. It mercifully ended by KO1. It was just kind of a joke. I mean, especially as far as you know, this stuff goes. And I've said, if these fights are part of a larger strategy to gain subscribers and this strategy actually works, I'm totally good with that. You know, I really am. Like, I have no problem with that. You know, my larger criticism on this issue is that this fight card happened on a Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. There were two 12-round fights that went the distance before this one even started. And honestly, I mean, if the fights are going to start at 9 p.m. Eastern on a weekday, and there are four of them, you need to be you need to be in the ring at the start of the broadcast. You need to have the first fight start at 9:05 rather than past 9:20, which is where it start started. The YouTuber fight I don't even think started till like almost 11:30. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Like, I almost would rather especially this Thursday night, I almost would have rather had it been the main event so that, and, and a lot of other boxing people have talked about this, where if you're going to do the YouTube fights, that's fine, but just do them on their own card or give them their own night or something like that. And I actually don't really care about that um, that much. You know, I understand that you're trying to, you know, I understand the strategy here. Don't necessarily agree with it. I mean, you know, just make it the main event. That way, if boxing fans don't want to watch the main event and it's a YouTube fight, they can just turn it off. I don't think you need to do it on a separate night. Um, I think it actually would have been a great data point to do that. Um, 
and here's the other thing. Like, I, I said this. I'm all in on Antonio Brown versus Logan Paul. I really am. And part of that's because I'm a Steeler fan, and I kind of think this whole thing is interesting. The one thing I'll say about the strategy, the second the second that this thing doesn't work for you, what you got to do if you're to zone, just admit you're wrong and cut bait. Because this fight didn't feel like an event the same way Logan Paul KSI did. Now, I think Antonio Brown, Logan Paul will probably feel like an event. I mean, that's they've been great in the build-up to that. I'm not even sure if they've officially announced it. Uh, but... But that will probably feel like an event. This one, I'm not sure how much of a difference it made. When you look at the main event, too, and let's just talk about the main event for a second. I mean, Andre literally had a knockout 10 seconds into the fight, probably should have gotten the KO in round one, two, or three. He took until the ninth, and he definitely kept East Coast audiences who were still tuned in. Like, I mean, you were up late if you watched this. It's just... Lots of people have covered this ground. I'm sick of Andre fighting long odds opponents. I th- and I think that's why I made that comment above, that if you're a unified title holder, and look, I know middleweight is a glamour division where the guys get paid a lot of money, so it, it, it's not like 122 pounds uh, with Danny Roman and MJ. But, man, I mean... Andre has now fought a pretty long list of, of opponents who've just had no shot at him where there are terrible odds. The activity for him has been great. It's been able to, you know, he's been able to put his name out there. He's sh- sort of showcased his ability. But I think we're at the point where fight fans just don't need to see him against guys like this again. You know, he's the type of fighter who, against really tough competition, is really appealing. And I want to see those fights. I mean, Chris Mannix has been banging the drum with Charlo. I think that'd be an awesome fight. And I really feel bad for Andre because I think a lot of people are now to the point, you know, where they actually, they've seen him. Some people aren't that impressed, but most people are like, oh, I wouldn't mind seeing against Triple G or Canelo. But it all goes back to DeZone needing that third fight between Triple G and Canelo. And they rightfully, you know, they don't want to risk it because Andre could easily win that fight against either guy, quite frankly. You know, I, 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 you might even make him the favorite against Triple G. I'm not sure he would be, but, it, like, it's really close odds. You know, if you can't get a Charlo to take a fight with Andre, then you need to step up the competition level to middleweights that I've heard of. It's really, like, I've heard of Sulecki. A lot of these other guys, I'm sitting here, I've needed to look them up, and that's crazy. Like you, I shouldn't be having to educate myself on Dimitri Sandre's opponents. Activity is no longer the issue for him. It's the level he's fighting at. And maybe that means he needs to wait and see what happens and how it shakes out with Canelo, Triple G, Charlo, etc. Maybe he needs to start taking fights where he's not in a main event and he takes a lesser fight against a guy, quite frankly, like a Luke Keeler, to put himself in the IBF's rankings, so maybe he can get force a shot against Triple G, become a mandatory, something like that. I would definitely be into seeing him fighting guys 
on the Rob Brandt level, the Murata level, obviously the Derevchenko, you know, level, like those are all great, but we're not seeing that. And if you're going to pay seven, if you're going to offer seven million bucks for Charlo, offer three or four for one of those guys. I'm sure they'll take it. If Canelo's not coming back down and you want Canelo Triple G in the fall at 168 or at a catchweight or whatever, you know, you need to make a decision with this if you're disowned. If you can't make that fight, you kind of need to get Andre in with Triple G. It's, I mean, you, you need to figure out other opponents for Canelo that make sense. This could be its own deep dive. It really could. It really could. Um, you know, one of the critiques that Hauser laid on DAZN and that many in boxing have, have, have also said is, is their lack of a quote-unquote boxing guy. I've talked about it a little bit on this podcast too. You know, you don't need a boxing guy to figure out what's going on at this weight class. Like, you need execs with clout and either based on goodwill that's been developed or contractual clout or just legal contractual wherewithal. Like, you need to move the chess pieces around such that they get subscriptions in 2020. And that's a legit criticism that you can lay on DAZN right now in this weight class. You know, I don't even care if you empower Canelo to make his own decisions, but right now, it doesn't feel like there is a plan for this weight class. And, you know, you, you, you've got a lot going on here. This is a glamour weight class. Moving on. Okay. On Saturday, February 1st, well, first of all, we were supposed to have that ESPN fight from China with Jose Ramirez and Victor Postal. That got delayed. It's looking like it's May 9th. I think the only thing of really interesting of note here is it actually, like, top rank at ESPN actually took some shit in the, in, initially uh, that it wasn't happening. And now it's just like so, we're like, so obviously that was the right call. And we're, it's literally like a world health crisis almost. Anyways. The fight that actually did happen on Saturday, February 1st, from Biloxi, Mississippi, on FS1, we had your Dennis Ugas beating Mike Dallas Jr. by KO at welterweight. There was also some fun action on the undercards. Uh, you know, that Clay Collard fight was crazy. More importantly here, I think, you know, because let's be honest, some of the undercard action was great. Some of it was, you know, meh. The show averages 324,000 viewers. It was the number 78-rated cable show of the day. Uh, the prelims were actually the number 134-ranked show of the day, and they averaged about 205,000 viewers. Um, and, you know, the lead-in to that, so the prelims were the lead-in to the main show. The PBA bowling show, that did like 295. It almost hit 300. That was the lead-in to the prelims. Those were the only three shows on FS1 to crack the top 150 cable shows of the day. And the Ugas card was actually the top-rated show on FS1 that that Saturday. Good for PBC here. I mean, you know, that's not amazing. Like, they, you know, FS1 should probably be doing better than that on a Saturday. But given that there was no lead-in, Basically, you don't really have any named fighters on the cards. Look, and I know your Dennis Ugas is a good fighter, but Mike Dallas Jr. 
he hadn't fought in a major fight in like six or seven years. And you still do a number that's the top-rated show on FS1 on a Saturday. That's pretty good. Good for PBC here. All right. Moving on to Saturday, February 8th, on Showtime from Allentown, Pennsylvania, we had Gary Russell Jr. defeating Tugstot Nyambayar by unanimous decision at featherweight for Russell's WBC belt. And then we had Guillermo Rigano pulling an old-school Rigo TV fight, beating Laborio Solis for a vacant WBA regular bantamweight title. Also on the card, Jaime Arboleda defeats Jason Velez by split decision. Showtime splits these up into different shows. The main event average is 361,000 viewers. It is the number 79 rated cable show of the day. The co-main, this actually, it looks like the co-main did 277 and the, you know, for the first undercard and 325 for the second undercard. Um, and those were the 73rd and 82nd rated shows. Of the day. Although they did split this up a little bit weird. So I could be wrong on that, and the first show, the first undercard may have done a little bit worse than that. Um, other than Rigo just pulling a full Rigo moment, and I'm biased here, I, this was actually a, a, a pretty good card. The first fight was really entertaining, and the Gary Russell Jr. fight was really entertaining. I really like watching Gary Russell Jr. fight, and this is a good stylistic matchup for him. I'd love to see him, and he did the right thing. Afterwards, by calling out not just Leo Santa Cruz, but Javante Davis too. That's a great fight. He should be calling out Javante Davis. We, we should be seeing that fight. And that's a fight that Gary Russell Jr. could probably get on pay-per-view. And it's an interesting stylistic matchup where he might have a legit shot at it. I mean, you got the Baltimore DC thing going on. There's some great stuff there that you could take full advantage of. Uh, other people have gone over this, but... I just I would love that. I, I I truly think that if Gary Russell Jr. really wants to step up his level of competition, and he says he does, keep calling out Javante Davis. I mean, if Javante Davis gets him, if he gets Leo Santa Cruz in May, there's a really good shot that Gary Russell Jr. you know could get him in the fall, especially if the Lomachenko fight doesn't totally match up. I mean, it looks like Lomachenko. And Javante Davis both could be headed to, to smaller-ish pay-per-views in May. Big fights, but but on the pay-per-view scale of things, small. We'll see where that goes. I mean, it could make sense for them to fight together. It may not. We'll have to see based on the numbers. Um, the Rigo stuff, I mean, when Rigo does this, Guillermo Rigando, just take him off TV. I mean, he has shown that he's fully capable of being a TV-friendly fighter. And here's the thing with him. Yes, he's an amazing talent. Hardcore, very hardcore fans, they appreciate him. But once you get out that small circle, not many people want to watch him fight. And I think what really frustrates people in the business, like network execs, promoters, managers, that kind of stuff, where you've been in this position, is that when he does, when he pulls a move like he did this, you know, this past weekend, it's just, he's so arrogant about it. Like, he, he, it's not like he just plays the strategic game to hit and not get hit. It's like he's, you can literally see how indignant he is when he's in the ring. It's not like another defense first. Like, you know, Andre's defense first. And you kind of respect the game plan and the skill level. Like I said, I think he should be fighting better fighters. But 
Rigando is, is indignant. Like, he flaunts it in everyone's face that he's making bad TV and he doesn't care. And if you're a TV exec, you're like, well, I'm just going to take you off TV if that's the case. Okay. Enough on Rigano. Let's go into the deep dive this week. I wanted to do more of an evergreen episode that I actually, I think it's out, it, look, it may start to be getting timely in a few different ways because I do think Floyd Mayweather is going to fight in 2020. Um, but given how the landscape of the pay-per-view business is changing so much, I wanted to look at it through the lens of Floyd and the impact that he's had on the pay-per-view industry. I mean, first things first, like he's the most successful pay-per-view fighter of all time. And more than anything else, like he's changed the game so much that in combination with a lot of other factors that are happening, you know, both in the entertainment world at large, like, you know, and, and what's happening with his own and other networks trying to do pay-per-view, like this may not ever be the same again. Um, so I want to look at how important his career has been to, to changing the industry. Um, and I'll try to bring up some of the very traditional points of debate about Floyd's career, but I'm also going to talk about a lot of the stuff that people haven't talked about quite as much. So, I mean, let's start just by looking at Floyd's career and how he got to the starting point. I mean, he made his pro debut back in 1996. I mean, just think about that. So that's a long time ago. He won his first title in 1998. He knocked out Gennaro Hernandez at 130 pounds. He started to appear on pound for pound list that year. And I think he was like 21 when this all happened. I mean, he was Ring Magazine's Fighter of the Year. And like this narrative has been told a bunch, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But Floyd's list of opponents for the next few years of his career is extremely impressive. You know, before he ever even gets to a pay-per-view fight. I mean, he fights Diego Corrales. He fights Carlos Hernandez, Emmanuel Augustus, Jose Luis Castillo twice. You know, the first time a lot of people thought he lost. You know, so starting at the very tail end of 1998 to like 2005, Floyd fights 15 times. I think almost all of them on HBO, either as main events or co-main events. And... You know, remember, one of the main narratives for Floyd's career is how many top-level fights he took before he ended up on pay-per-view. And that's true, but I think it really only tells part of the story. I mean, the context for this goes to one of the main points that I'm trying to make here, which is that if you created the perfect conditions in a lab to create an environment for Floyd to be a successful pay-per-view fighter, we're seeing some of the ingredients start to coalesce together right now for this to happen. I mean, first of all, during this run, the HBO budget, you know, maybe it's not at its absolute peak, but it is pretty darn high. A late 90s to mid 2000s is part of the golden age, or at least it's like the tail end of the golden age of what HBO Sports is doing in boxing. You know, also significant here is that HBO pay-per-view business, like it is robust. And I mean, the pay-per-view business overall it's proven, it's mature, it's robust, it's a business that can support multiple events per year, it can still truly command the attention of mainstream sports, you know, and mainstream sports fans, like the heavyweight era of the 90s, and then Oscar De La Hoya, like, there's a proven marketplace, it's proven in America that people are willing to shell out for pay-per-view, and that they like these big events, you know, these two things, I mean, the HBO budget and the mature pay-per-view business working in conjunction, 
are actually really important because HBO can pay, they can still pay enough at this point to keep fighters off pay-per-view if they truly didn't belong there. So what this allows Floyd to do is fight on HBO in front of larger audiences, showcasing his talent for an extended period of time and really building up a fan base as a classic boxer. You know, we'll talk about timing later, but look, timing is important here. I mean, actually, we'll talk about timing of, of Floyd all the way through this. Had Floyd come along 10 years earlier, that would have he would have come along before HBO had the Boxing After Dark series, you know, and, and he may not have been able to fight so many times and make decent money on HBO to develop his fan base. He may have had to fight lower level fights for lesser money on his way up. And had Floyd come along 10 years later, he certainly would have been a hot prospect, but he might not have had the luxury of taking so many fights on HBO, you know, before going to pay-per-view and getting off the network. I mean, the budget was starting to shrink by that point. You know, there were starting to be some problems internally at HBO, and, like, there were other things, you know, Floyd would have, you know, likely missed. Like, he was the first fighter on 24-7, and had he come along 10 years later, maybe he wouldn't have been the first fighter on 24-7. So let's talk about that for a second here. I mean, what really became the first big step in defining Floyd Mayweather as a genius is him changing his marketing strategy for himself from Pretty Boy Floyd to Money Mayweather on 24-7. But I actually want to talk about this in a much broader context because this change is something indicative of a much bigger part of Floyd, you know, and, and what he's been able to do. Like Floyd's success as a pay-per-view star is really due to a few separate issues. One is he's a generational talent. Um, but to be fair to other fighters, like I'm pretty sure you can probably find other fighters of his generation who actually had similar talent levels to Floyd. Uh, you know, I think his work ethic in combination with that is one of the things that defined him. You know, two, I guess maybe even three if you count the work ethic, but let's set that aside for a second. I mean, one of two is, you know, Floyd is incredible at being able to market himself and his persona in a way that few have been able to do before. And obviously the combination of being a generational talent and being able to market yourself in this incredible way, that's really rare in boxing. Third, and, and probably most important, I know most of the time people don't talk about this, is Floyd's ability to adapt, understand, and capitalize on changing marketplaces in his workspace, like he's able to do this better, not just than any fighter, but like he's able to do it better than a lot of like companies are able to do. Like this is a strategic strength and he's able to do it time and time again. And I'll get back to that later on. But this is like what makes him historic. You know, like this is a major point of differentiation from everybody else, it's rarefied air, like not just in sports, but in any walk of life. I mean, you know, remember Floyd started his career after the 1996 Olympics back when a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast, like you may have had a, your first email address by then. Like you, you may, that might have been before you ever actually used the internet. 
he won his first title a lot of times before before anyone had probably read an article on the internet. So look, let's go back, like, let's visit Floyd in terms of where he is in, in his career, kind of around, you know, back where we were. Like, he's just about to fight Arturo Gatti in 2005 on his first pay-per-view, and that ends up selling a couple hundred thousand units, like three or four hundred, something like that. doesn't really matter. I mean, he embarks on a nice little run here where he goes back on HBO to fight Sharma Mitchell, and then he moves up to welterweight, and he fights Zab Judah on pay-per-view and Carlos Baldwin on pay-per-view. And then he comes to this fork in the road where he gets the Oscar De La Hoya fight at welterweight on pay-per-view. And there's a few things going on in Floyd's life as he approaches this fight. Like, the Judah fight is his last fight with top rank. Like, he and Al Heyman negotiate a buyout from top rank, you know, reportedly for seven hundred fifty grand. You know, the Oscar fight ends up happening under the Golden Boy Promotions banner, and that ends up being significant for Floyd in terms of creating a successful model going forward. I mean, these moves are all part of a larger strategy to do something very different in the boxing world at this point. You know, and I think, like, this is one of the main talking points of, like, oh, this is how he's so different. Like, he, you know, he, at the same time, he kind of separated from any it's not just top rank it's like any promoter like he's he separated himself from a promoter um and he sort of figured out how to do it on his own where he kept most of the profits that's one of the differentiating points of his career and like that's true but like let's be honest here like a lot of the top generational talents in boxing have done stuff like this i mean maybe for it's their version of their generation but like sugar ray leonard did this like Muhammad Ali did a version of this. Like they always kind of challenged the status quo and they did it with a strategy that looks out for their brand and their well-being and best interest first, you know, at least in their prime, certainly for Ali and his, you know, that, that changed later, but they maximize the revenue for them personally and they do it in a way that if other people try to copy it, it doesn't necessarily work. I mean, you know, sometimes that's, will of personality like Muhammad Ali and, and sort of taking the lead on certain you know, issues that he certainly was on the right side of history on. Um, you know, it, what I really respect with Floyd and, and what Al Heyman did at this time is they did it all as just part of this larger strategy. Like, you know, apparently when he buys himself out of top rank, like, he got offered the Margarito fight for eight million bucks, which would have been a career high payday, but he doesn't do that. You know, supposedly he wanted twenty million for the Oscar fight, and he couldn't get that. And he ends up getting, you know, with top rank, he ends up getting twenty five million for it. I mean, th those are the kind of things where like those numbers are never going to be confirmed. That's what's reported. The bigger issue for me is not oh, he made up $5 million here or he lost out on it. It's that when you go with this kind of strategy, there are plenty of times, especially in boxing, where a fighter takes a huge risk and they bet on themselves. They turn down a big guaranteed payday. And what happens in boxing, like a lot of times it never ends up coming back to them. Like you end up losing really big rather than winning really big. And how many times has a fighter been offered career high paydays? They turn it down, especially if it's a winnable fight, and then they not they they never get 
another offer for close to that again, or they take really low money for their next fight. I mean, this is even with fighters who are Hall of Famers, like Juan Manuel Marquez, like this kind of stuff is pretty, pretty regular. Like th this happens a lot. And I don't want to belabor the actual events that took place because like this is the stuff that people know about. I mean, obviously what ends up happening is Floyd takes the Oscar fight. HBO comes out with this new show called 24-7 and it took the marketing of the individual fighters to the next level. You know, Floyd capitalizes it by coming out with the new persona called Money Mayweather. He goes on to win the fight by split decision. 24-7, by the way, airs after Sopranos. Like, it's not like, like it was, you know, the people who watch HBO Boxing in the, in the teens, they know of 24-7 of as airing after a live fight. And here, I mean, look, at this came on Sunday night after Sopranos when it first came out. You know, that fight becomes the first pay-per-view to top 2 million buys. It does it emphatically. It gives Floyd a padded runway where like his next several fights end up sort of automatically topping a million buys no matter who he's fighting. Like he beats Ricky Hatton in December of 07. He takes a little time off. He beats Juan Manuel Marquez, then Shane Mosley, then Victor Ortiz, then Miguel Cotto. You know, in all these fights, sort of he establishes himself as the Cinco de Mayo weekend fighter or the Mexican Independence Day weekend fighter. You know, I think the Cotto fight is the last fight sort of in that run, and that happens in 2012. Now, let's take a slightly closer look at this period outside of the ring for Floyd, because I think there's a few pretty important developments happening during this time, which are which end up being key to his pay-per-view success, not just here, but later. So first of all, HBO is rolling along on the pay-per-view front. By the time Floyd comes back and fights Marquez, you know, most of the pay-per-view fights we're seeing are just Floyd and Manny. So I think it's starting in 09, Floyd fought Marquez, you know, and if you go through 12, you know, 2012 with Cotto, I think besides a Roy Jones fight against Bernard Hopkins, it's pretty much all Floyd and Manny in that, in that sort of four-year run. And this is actually a pretty significant change because a year or two before that, HBO was throwing up like eight or nine pay-per-views a year, and I think all parties involved would have preferred a system where there's only two or three pay-per-views, like maybe four, but they're all just like bigger events. And Floyd and Manny kind of switched the system to that, which ended up working really well for them. It, it comes back to that timing where it's like they came along and really established themselves as big event pay-per-view people at a time when there was a, a, a fairly fractured market and they sort of consolidated it. So that worked out really well for Floyd that timing. You know, he also, he got a ton of exposure on the subsequent 24-7 episodes and he really started to do, build up other parts of who he was, his persona outside the ring, social media, sort of personal branding, you know, and he started to do something pretty significant with, with, pay-per-view fights at this point you know and as like a point of comparison let's just compare him to Manny like Manny's brand is all about the action in the ring and what an exciting fighter he is and there's a little bit of how he's like this funny sort of smiling character who sings these songs on Kimmel and stuff like that but like Floyd is creating a personal brand that is actually cultivating multiple different audiences which I think ends up probably being 
one of the more important things he does for the longevity of his overall business. I mean, sometimes he's the braggadocious boxer who's openly flaunting his money. Sometimes he's showing this insane work ethic that, you know, I kind of talked about earlier and that's helped him reach his true potential in the ring. Sometimes he's showing moments of doubt or vulnerability outside the ring. Like maybe it's drama with his friendships. Maybe it's his brittle hands or injuries or something like that. Like whatever it is, like he always is giving a storyline that could give haters something to latch on to. And let's actually put a pin in that point and come back to it because you know, that's something that does get talked about. But I want to frame it sort of slightly different. But by the end of 2012, just as the general public has, you know, is getting ready for this Floyd Manny fight. For a couple of years, there's been a pretty big buildup to it. Manny sort of falls off the rail, like he loses a bullshit decision to Tim Bradley, and then he gets KO'd by Marquez. And as Floyd is starting to renegotiate his next contract with HBO, like he ends up getting this amazing offer from Showtime, and he moves over to Showtime pay-per-view. And there's a lot of things going on here behind the scenes, like, you know, I don't really want to focus on all that stuff, because this show is really about... Floyd's impact on pay-per-view, not that stuff, but, you know, the Heyman ended up taking his fighters over to Showtime, and, you know, Golden Boy's having some internal issues and all that kind of, like, that stuff does matter in the grand scheme of things. It, you know, it ends up being contributing factors to Floyd moving over to Showtime, and Showtime is guaranteeing Floyd, like, $30 million a fight. I mean, look, I, like I said, I remember most people at HBO, they don't really see how this is going to be possible to do that in a responsible way. And, you know, I can tell you, I mean, Showtime was betting that Floyd was going to continue to do very strong pay-per-view numbers, not ever see a blip or a really bad one, and have at least one or two sort of humongous ones, like just for this to break even and not be a total disaster. And if you're Floyd, I do want to point this out, even though that money is guaranteed, it's not just Showtime taking a pretty big bet on you. You're actually taking a fairly decent bet on Showtime. And I know that sounds crazy when it's like there's 180 million bucks guaranteed, 30 million bucks a fight for six fights. It's Showtime at this point, they did a one-off pay-per-view of Pacquiao versus Mosley in 2011. But I don't think they did a single pay-per-view before that, except for Mike Tyson's last fight in like 2004 or five or something like that. And so they, they guaranteed all this money, but like, you don't know exactly how they're going to do like 24 seven has been so important to you. How exactly are they going to do all access? How are they going to guarantee that you're going to get certain fighters that at least will maintain your profile? I mean, look, you're going to get the money either way, but You, you are taking a little bit of a chance on them. I do want to say that. And it's also, pay-per-view is starting to change. Like This is back when digital marketing is starting to become really important. Like, you know, be perhaps even more important than traditional marketing. I mean, social media is starting to play a huge role in this. Yeah, the cable companies are still dominating everything, but how this whole thing is going down is starting to change. And... You know, the rest of it is kind of history in terms of what happens with Floyd. He fights seven times for Showtime pay-per-view. 
three out of those seven are three of the top four all-time best-selling pay-per-view fights in history. And I mean, even when he's fighting a guy like Robert Guerrero, like he did in his first fight, he managed to do the build-up correctly. And you start to look at those numbers, like, it tells you a lot. I mean, most estimates for the Guerrero fight were he sold a million pay-per-view you know, units against Robert Guerrero. You, I don't think Guerrero got more than five or six million bucks for the fight. Floyd's guaranteed around 30 million. And I mean, look, we're wondering how the math works out on that when we're at HBO. You know, even the, even the simple back of a napkin math is like, if it's 70 bucks for the fight and you sell a million units, well, that's 35 million bucks, you know, which is, again, total oversimplification of, of how this works. I want to emphasize this. Uh, 35 million goes to the cable companies, 35 million to fight. Well, you probably break even on that fight if you, if, you know, if you're Showtime. But you compare that to like Pacquiao now getting 20 million and Thurman getting seven and a half million, they don't even hit 500,000 buys. Or Wilder getting 20 and Ortiz getting seven and a half and they don't even hit 300,000. I mean, we were questioning the math on a million back then. It tells you how how much the industry has changed right now. I mean, I don't want to get a, caught on a side note here, but like, you know, the, even with the Maidana fights, it's like, I don't, I'm not sure those hit a million buys, but here's the thing. None of that matters. Cause when you do over 2 million for Canelo, like well over 2 million for Canelo, 4.7 for Pacquiao, 4.1 for Connor. I mean, you're essentially printing money. You're just obliterating records. It erases any marginal loss in any other fights you have. Berto fight, whatever. I mean, I don't want to just reminisce on how many pay-per-view buys Floyd did. I mean, you know, the big question is why is Floyd so different? Like, how did he make it work? Like, that's why you're listening to me in this podcast rather, you know, than like just a bunch of regurgitation of talking points. And here's what I want to get into. What really set Floyd apart is he understood the art of selling a fight. Like he, he, his understanding of that was at the highest level of any fighter in his era. In fact, I'm not even sure anyone comes close to him in his era. You know, w one of the things he was really great at being able to do was creating a pre-fight narrative for how to sell the fight, either based on his own persona or what could happen in the ring. Like he was so great on 24/7 at doing, you know, in terms of doing this. Like he's. Like, at this point in his career, he's basically taking fights that he's almost certainly going to win. And the whole reason you do a 24-7 or all-access is basically to, to convince the audience that the other guy has a shot. Or at least put out a certain narrative where the other guy was really interesting and posed a major threat to Floyd. You know, you always heard, most people sit here and you always think about, oh, Floyd is just always constantly talking about how great he was. But one of the things he did really well is you never saw him truly break down why he was going to beat and how he was going to beat another opponent until after the fight. But he always made sure that the public thought that his opponent had a legitimate chance to win even when they didn't. And Ricky Hatton's 24-7 might be like the most classic example of this, where you kind of, like the audience kind of falls in love with Hatton as a person, you know, but even the way they shoot it, the non-hardcore fan walks away from that thinking that Hatton has a legit chance to win. And this is strategic on Floyd's part. 
I don't spend too much time on this, but you know, just in terms of pure storytelling for fight, he's great at it. And what's impressive about that is when you have an ego like he does, it's just really impressive because most fighters with gigantic egos won't want to sell the fight and they'd rather look invincible to the public. But Floyd actually knew that he had to sell the fight and he had to create drama and narratives. You know, another part of what's, you know, another nuanced element of what really set Floyd apart is his understanding of how to bring multiple audiences together on his own, as opposed to the old model. And here's what I mean by this. Everyone talks about how many people Floyd had biased fights who, you know, who wanted to see him lose. I kind of touched on that earlier and how genius that was. But that's honestly only part of the equation. Like Floyd built his brand so successfully that he had a group of people who would buy his fight no matter what because they loved the TMT brand in a positive way in terms of how flashy he was with his money and his own brand. Then he had a group of people who just loved to watch him fight because he was the top sort of urban or African-American fighter in the U.S. or in the, you know, in the world. Then he had another group of people who liked to watch him fight because he was pound for pound the top fighter for so long, just in the sport. Then he had another group of people who hated what he stood for so much that they paid to see him lose. Like, the old model would be, oh, you have this guy like Oscar, he has a huge Mexican-American fan base, and he's going to fight Felix Trinidad, who has a huge Puerto Rican fan base. And then the pay-per-view does extra well because you're combining two different fan bases. And that's really, that's an oversimplification. And there's, there's some truth to it though. And it's also really from a different era to be perfectly honest. But Floyd took that model and he sort of ran with it, but he did it on his own. So he built all these different fan bases and that weren't, dependent on just just something as simple as like an ethnic fan base or anything like that like he had he literally had several different fan bases who all bought his fight for different reasons and i think that's really smart one of the other things that Floyd understands pretty well is how to make something a big event and 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 when to take it to the next level i mean and i think there's this is also a sense of having like really good people around you uh, sort of in the management network side of things in your life, there's they sort of ha his team sort of just has this meter for where they can read pretty well early on in the process what the public demand is for potential fights, like especially like at an early stage, and we've seen numerous examples of Floyd's team or even Floyd on social media. I mean, remember Amir Khan for this floating out potential matchups or scenarios or sort of, and then seeing what the response was. And, you know, you'll hear rumors of how he'll leak stuff to the press and sort of see what they think, see what the general public thinks, and then they can figure out whether or not to move forward with it. And it's not like that's super original, but I think when you're at his level, you have to be really good at reading the tea leaves because you're making an economic decision that can be worth millions of dollars to you depending on how you read it. And I think the next level here of what he did well is he understood how to make something a really big event if it can be pushed further and how to do it properly. You know, Pacquiao is a great example. He barely did anything there. He just sort of recognized that there's incredible wave 
of support for him fighting Pacquiao, and he just rode the wave. So did Pacquiao. You look at something like the Conor McGregor fight, though, and these are the only two fights to even top $3 million, much less $4 million. Well, I think at first there was they didn't want to do that fight, but then when they recognized how well Conor could talk trash, how much of a star Conor was in his world, and then what the public appetite started to look like for that, I mean, they literally, and credit to Showtime for this, they created a wave you know, with this insane media tour. And this is a fight, I mean, like, remember the beginning of this, a lot of people did consider this fight a farce. But this could have easily been considered a complete commercial farce instead of a phenomenon. I think that's pretty impressive. You know, even when you go back further and you look at the build-up to the Canelo fight, like, Floyd understood exactly which elements of his persona to play up and advance that fight and really push the numbers... I mean, that did way better than a lot of people thought it would do. You know, Floyd gets some negative attention. I think, let's just frame this in a larger sense. I mean, there's really two knocks on Floyd. One is that he's cherry-picked his opponent since Oscar. You know, and two is that, like, he's had legal troubles where he's, you know, he's gone to jail and, and beat women. And, I mean, let's... Let's deal with the in-the-ring part first, because you know, I think it's pretty easy, at least from my perspective. I mean, on his way up, look, Floyd beat a murderer's row of opponents, and, and since the Oscar fight, he's not fought opponents at that level, but he's still fought a, a really big list of names, maybe even bigger names that he fought on his way up. He's done it usually at the perfect time, whether either on the downside or he's given himself a weight advantage, you know, or maybe he's fought him before they were ready. Like, you know, we can sort of look, you know, Pacquiao or Marquez, like the weight advantage, Canelo before he was ready. But here's what I'd say. I mean, boxing doesn't have a league that forces guys to fight. And Floyd, when you're the top draw in the sport, you're basically the commissioner. Like, you get to pick the opponents the way you want them. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't just take the Pacquiao fight to show you that, you know, many times when fighters reach their peak in terms of sellability, like they're past their actual prime in the actual ring. You know, this is pretty common. It's not unique to Floyd. I think what's impressive is like, hey, Floyd's well into his 40s now. And most of the time, especially at his weight class, when you're into your 30s or your deep 30s, you're on the smaller side, like you start to decline. I mean, this is why everyone's so impressed with Manny right now. Look, Floyd looked like he was still in his prime deep into his 30s. You know, what this really boils down to is, is you know, yes, part of Floyd's brand was being undefeated. He didn't take fights the core fan base, you know, would have loved him to take, like, that's actually a pretty smart preservation of your commercial value. I do get that knock on him, though. I mean, look, he didn't go up the weight class to fight Sergio, even though he held the, you know, he probably could have fought Sergio Martinez or Triple G at 154. Both of those guys would have moved down from 160 to fight Floyd at 154. He didn't rematch Canelo at 154. I mean, I'm not sure when that could have happened. It probably could have happened when Canelo was sort of fighting at 155. Like, yeah, he fought Pacquiao too late. But, these are legit issues, you know, 
there's no mandate in boxing for him to take those fights. Are they legit issues? Yes, but like they're just legit issues to the core fan base, not the general public. I do get this criticism, but I just say like, look, that's how boxing goes. If you were in his position, you'd have done the exact same thing. He played it perfect. Good for him. You know, I think what's impressive is usually what happens, and maybe this is more a product of the non-promoter model, which he had, Usually what happens is an older fighter gets overpaid to fight a young lion. And that's what happened when Oscar was fighting Floyd. What happened with Klitschko fought AJ. I mean, there's a million examples of it. The fact that it didn't happen with Floyd is a testament to his longevity at the top, the matchmaking that his team did. And, you know, he's still really that good. And here's the crazy part. Even if Floyd were to come back right now, in shape and fight all the top welterweights. And there's a group of four that you'd want to see. It's Floyd, Manny, Crawford, and Spence. And I'd favor Floyd against Manny right now. Maybe not by much, but I think I would. And I have to see Spence in his first fight back since the car wreck, but like, honestly, that's a pretty close one for me too right now. I think I'd favor Crawford stylistically against Floyd right now, but only slightly. Only slightly. And he's 43 now. Like, he's legitimately 10 years older than these guys. I mean, the real elephant in the room is tough because, you know, Floyd's gone to jail for bad behavior. And how does a fighter deal with bad behavior when it's, you know, especially when it's violence against women? I mean, it's a tough subject to talk about for a couple reasons. And it's kind of timely. We're seeing it with Javante Davis right now. You know, it especially can get a little bit uncomfortable with the character that Floyd plays, like, you know, the sort of dynamic character that he's played on screen, um, this heel character that I mentioned above, like this whole subset of people who buy his fights to watch him lose. I mean, at what point does art become real life? Cause you're playing a heel character and then you're actually in real life going to jail. I mean, there's some, there's some lines that are probably being crossed there and I'm not here to come down from Mount Pius in a sport like boxing. Like I say that all the time. I'm also not here to just turn a blind eye. I mean, what I will say though is Floyd benefited from doing this on pay cable channels who are typically more artist friendly when it comes to this kind of stuff. And, and you know, that comes down, you know, again, the timing does really matter. It's like, I'm not sure places like ESPN or Fox would have stood by Floyd the way HBO and Showtime did. Like I said, pay cable companies in general can afford to stand by artists. And I am considering Floyd and artists when I say that. And the reason they can do it is because they don't have sponsors. They don't take advertising money. So they don't have to hear any level of uncomfort with, with brands that are paying a ton of money to sponsor the programming. It's just a subscription model. It makes more sense that way. I mean, I'm not trying to get into some of the nuances here because, I, like I said, it can get uncomfortable real quick, and I don't condone this stuff. But what I will say is that if you end up working in a sport like boxing, and I'm sure there's other sports too, in a very general sense, you realize that the very thing that attracts you to the sport, the stories behind these fighters, the circumstances in life that many of them have overcome, like those elements can also 
easily get uncomfortable because the fighters didn't necessarily get a lot of the same memos that the rest of society got. And I'm not defending them when I say that, but what I will say is that is a rationale for putting these events on and still working with these types of guys. And they're complicated individuals. I don't think you necessarily walk away from this saying, oh, he's just a, he's a bad guy. Like it's, it's just not that simple, you know, but I don't want to defend that or come off defending that. The final factor here in Floyd's timing and is sort of his ability to execute on all this, which I think is, is important. And, and, you know, again, I think even if Floyd had been a few years earlier, a few years later, he may have had, he may not have had the same pathway, but I think he would have landed at a really similar destination. I mean, and this is where I have some of the most respect for him for a few different reasons. I mean, the biggest thing with, with Floyd for me is that it wasn't just a one hit wonder. It wasn't just, he made one strategic move and then capitalized on it for the rest of his career or something like that. Like, he did this time and time again. Like he started his career, like I said, probably before many people listening were even using the internet and he's constantly evolved along the way. And like he fought, yeah, he fought murderers row upon on the way up. He shifted his personality. Like, you know, in 2007, he moved away from a traditional promoter, like top rank, you know, sort of way ahead of his time. Hasn't been replicated since. I mean, maybe Canelo's headed that way, but still hasn't really been replicated since. He developed different parts of his personal brand, which took years to do and fully realize. And he did it so well on social media that it helped sell his fights really well. And then it helped give him other extensions with merchandise. He's got a whole gym going. Like his timing on this stuff was really perfect. Like he mastered each of these as they came through and some people might say, Oh, I had a great team. Well, like look at his Instagram for a sec. Just, just like we all sit here and talk about how great Ryan Garcia's Instagram following is, but Floyd's at 23 million followers. I mean, Garcia's at like four. I think Pacquiao's only at 5.6 or something like that. Like he's just at a different level and it's because he put real works into it. He put real work into it. And yeah, like he's had some great timing. Like I've made that point all the way throughout this. But he isn't just a one-hit wonder. He's done it time and time again in different mediums. And where I get to the point where, you know, you can say it's just his team, but where I disagree with that is this, it's his execution, both on screen, you know, for 24-7 or all access, and then in the ring, like that's what sets him apart. Like, Unlike other fighters, he's willing to put in the, you know, the long work in the gym. And I think there's a lot of fighters who are willing to work really hard in the gym. He's clearly ready to outwork even the the hardest of workers. But then he's got this great sense of how to craft the narrative on screen. Like, he's ready to craft his reality TV persona, sort of. And boxing, 
it's not just an idea business. And I think reality TV is the same way. Like it's an execution business. You can have a great idea for how to change your persona, but if you can't pull it off as a great reality TV character time and time again, then it doesn't matter that you had a great idea. You can be a genius in the ring. I just spent the first part of this podcast talking about Rigo. But if you don't stay in shape, put in all the hours and training leading up to it, and then actually execute in the ring, all that genius and talent doesn't matter. I mean, I think the other part about the timing, and I think this really speaks to what he's done now, is like we're in this era now where there's just so many choices for how to broadcast anything, like much less boxing. There's so many options for entertainment. You know, and we've seen this affect the pay-per-view market. I mean, basically five years ago, WWE, UFC, you know, even some other MMA like Bellator and boxing were all thriving on pay-per-view. I mean, the industry was very much in the public consciousness. Like there were lots of regular events that did well above 750,000 buys. The WWE Network basically folds pay-per-view into it. UFC, you know, a year ago goes exclusive to ESPN+. Plus. So basically exclusively digital. I mean, boxing hasn't had a pay-per-view top 500,000 buys since Canelo last fought on pay-per-view. You know, pay-per-view events, you know, even before that, like pay-per-view, it's not like Canelo was hitting 2 million regularly. I mean, he basically, he only hit one, you know, he barely hit 1.3 million for Golovkin the first time. He did less than that the second time. Boxing pay-per-views now are struggling to hit 500 grand. And Floyd's done over 4 million, you know, twice during this time span. Part of that is society moving everything, you know, in entertainment to sort of just being a smaller, except for a few mega events. But the impressive thing is Floyd's figured out how to break through and be part of those. You know, maybe part of that is boxing is trying to fill the void of who's going to be the next pay-per-view star and the natural successor to Floyd. And Canelo is now working on a new business model that has nothing to do with pay-per-view. But I still think Floyd stands head and shoulders above the rest. I mean, you know... The timing of it may indicate that he'll never be topped in this respect. And again, I do think we'll see him back with another one that probably tops 2 million buys. I think we'll see him back in 2020. But who knows? Who knows? Anyways, let's move on to the preview section. I wanted to do, I wanted to emphasize here with, with Floyd. I wanted to do that section because I think there's a lot of elements of things that don't really get talked about that I just think he does really well. And I don't think fighters in the U.S., you know, it's basically him and Conor McGregor. That's who does this kind of stuff really, really well consistently. Part of Floyd's brand is is winning and, and, and you know, being the best ever, but like, I think he does it well enough that he could even take a loss and still, I think he would still come back and, and be just as big. I mean, Connor's kind of shown that. I think stars are just truly stars, and, and these guys do it better than anybody else. Anyways, let's move on to the preview section. We do still have some stuff to talk about here. Friday, February 14th from Anaheim and on to zone, we have Ryan Garcia versus Francisco Fonseca, 12 rounds at lightweight. Also on the card, Jorge Linares versus Carlos Morales. Garcia is like a 50 to 1 favorite. Linares is like 8 or 9 to 1. 
I do expect quick work here for both guys. I guess with Linares, you never know at this point in his career. If they do end up fighting next, Garcia and Linares, I'll be interested in that fight, but still favoring Garcia pretty heavily. Also on Friday the 14th from Philadelphia and on Showtime for Showbox, I might have to start doing these Showbox cards. They're starting to get really interesting. No odds out yet. It's Thomas Matisse versus Isaac Cruz Gonzalez. Um, they've been putting on pretty good stuff consistently of late, and, I th- and and there is some ratings evidence that these are making an impact, especially you know sometimes, especially with where some of these FS1 cards were in the summer. I should probably be doing these. So, mental note from here on out, I'll, I'll try and report on these if if I can. On Saturday, February fifteenth, from Nashville and on Fox, we have Caleb Plant fighting against Vincent. Figginbutz for Plant's IBF Super Middleweight title. Also on the card, Brian Perello versus Abel Ramos. Uh, there's a few other names. Diego Ma- Magdaleno is in a is in a, uh, a, a fight where he, you know, probably not even going to be favored. Rishi Warren, Caleb, uh, Caleb Truax, they should all be favored. It's kind of an underwhelming card. Fox did this to us last year. It's the same night against M- NBA All-Star Weekend. I think Plant is the only one with odds at. He's like a 20, 25, 30-1 favorite over Feigenblitz. But no one's here to talk about that. Let's talk about the big one. On Saturday, February 22nd, from Las Vegas and on ESPN and Fox, joint pay-per-view. We have Deontay Wilder fighting Tyson Fury in the rematch for the WBC. And, of course, the lineal heavyweight titles. Can't leave that out. Uh, Also on the card, Charles Martin fighting Gerald Washington in an IBF heavyweight eliminator. Emmanuel Navarrete fighting uh, Geo Tupas Santissima for Navarrete's WBO junior featherweight title. And then Sebastian Fendor versus Daniel Lewis. There are some notable fighters further down on the card. Amir Amon versus Javier Molina is one of them. Gabe Flores Jr. also fighting on the card. Look, I have a lot to say about this fight and the pay-per-view part of it. You know, and we're already running fairly long here, so I'll try and sum up how I think this all needs to be framed right now rather than do another whole freaking deep dive on this kind of thing. Fox and ESPN working together, it's got to be challenging. I mean, HBO and Showtime working together was challenging, especially in just the day-to-day part of this. And what Fox did by putting... The spots on during the Super Bowl and the build-up to the Super Bowl and the post-game, that is literally unprecedented in boxing. You know, I know they've been playing the spot a ton on FS1. I know ESPN's starting to play it. I mean, but that press release, 120 million people seeing the spot, it's just incredible in that one place. I'm sure ESPN's going to play it a lot, too. We're starting to see some interesting shoulder programming coming out. There was a two-part series, uh, you know, came out that's getting a lot of play. Here's what we've learned with Fox and to a lesser extent ESPN, though. Being, having that bigger platform doesn't always mean you're doing the whole thing better. I mean, and let me just play devil's advocate for a second here. I'm, I'm, there's a case for the Super Bowl ads, which is literally that they're awesome and it's unprecedented and it's everything I ever wanted when I worked at HBO. But let's make the case against it. I, I, I think 
I think it's a worthy discussion to have. Out of the 120 million people that saw the spot, only a very small percentage of those people are actual candidates to buy the fight. And I think, yes, it's important for awareness, but it's probably more important to identify those candidates, and there might only be three to five million people out of those 120 million people, and identify those people and hit them with frequency rather than with a 15-second Super Bowl ad. And it remains to be seen if there's going to be a media plan with a lot of frequency on any other places than Fox and ESPN. And if you're playing this spot a lot during like the Westminster Dog Show or something like that, like I'm not sure this fight breaks through into the public consciousness where that really matters. I'm not sure where at Mayweather Pacquiao where there's legitimately 10 to 12 million candidates to buy the fight. A Super Bowl ad three weeks out. You know, and quite frankly, like here's another part of it. It's it's a it was this was a this this is a highlight ad. Like this didn't tell the story of the fight very well. And I think when you look at a place like BT Sport where there's some institutional knowledge, you know, they've been putting out some interesting social media content. You know, they're in the UK. You can see a place that has some institutional knowledge. And the other part about the Super Bowl that's weird is you're up against every brand's very best ad that they're going to do. Like, all the brands have been spending millions of dollars just to create an ad. Um, the ads are going to get reviewed almost as much or more as the Super Bowl is. This is something you do need to think about. You have a footage spot. Like that's in the businesses we call it, we'll call it a, fo a footage spot. Like you didn't actually create a, an ad that you shot on the green screen or where you told a story of the fight. You just, you basically put it together with footage. And that's a little bit of a warning sign, you know, especially when you're putting it up in the Super Bowl against places that are putting out brand new ads for the first time. You're doing that three weeks before the fight. Most of the time, it's really just three days before the fight that matters. They did a press conference in L.A., and then they had to do it again. That's a little weird. There's not really a press tour. There's not a traditional marketing campaign to speak of in terms of seeing a lot of out-of-home out billboards or anything like that. Now, granted, we're a few weeks out. We wouldn't be seeing a lot of the TV ads right now anyways and you are seeing a lot of the tv ads on fs1 and you're starting to see it on espn and there's starting to be good programming that's coming out but i think there's weaknesses are they going to take full advantage of the cable systems i mean so far fox and espn have have eschewed that they've not chosen to engage cable systems in the same way that HBO and Showtime do. And I think that's a huge part of getting a big pay-per-view buy rate number. Yes, the, the, they're not as good for the promotion financially. 
as digital buys, but it really matters in terms of juicing your number to, to engage the cable systems as much as possible. And this is the first fight since Canelo Triple G where you should have the cable companies fully engaged. I'm not sure that's the case. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. We're going to find out week of the fight for sure. I think the I would set the over under right now at 800,000 buys. That's where I'd set the over under. I legitimately hope it's over so we can continue to see collaborations like this. I think that if they nail the final fight week, a million is possible, 1.1, 1.2, that's totally possible. I think we're more likely to see 750 to 800. If stuff starts to go wrong, if they take a risky strategy and they don't engage the cable systems the way they should, it could be less than that, or that may not matter. No one, we have literally no data on how putting a Super Bowl ad out affects the way that people would consider buying a pay-per-view, especially like this. But you got to remember, neither of these guys has sold over 400,000 you know, pay-per-view units before. And I'm not sure a Super Bowl ad on its own can fix that. This isn't GoDaddy where you're in some weird internet era where you put all your money into a Super Bowl ad and just by doing that, you get a lot of attention. Like this is, there's no make goods on this. You have to really remind consumers of when this fight is and why it's important. There's a lot of other stuff going on. I'm rooting for it. You should be too. We'll know a lot more about what's going on week of the fight and if they can really, I mean, that, that like I said, that's you nail that, you nail everything. But is there a world where this really disappoints and does five or 600,000 buys in that range? Like, yes, there is that, that there are pathways to that happening. There's pathways to it being over a million. I know that sounds crazy, but it's, there's no data points on, on this kind of marketing campaign yet. I think the fear is that these big companies push it out on their big platforms, but don't hit the base hard enough and they haven't told the story of the fight correctly. And I hope that changes. I really do. Because I don't think they've done it correctly to this point. I think, that, I think we're starting to see some of the things that do it correctly. But anyway, that's where I land on the fight right now. That could obviously change. If I were to make a prediction, I would say between 750 and 800. That's what I would say. Enjoy this one for sure. I certainly will be. I don't know what to say about the stuff February 14th and 15th. I guess enjoy that. March will be dry for boxing fans, but... The way April and May are starting to line up, we're going to see some good stuff. We're going to really see some good action. So get ready for that. All right, guys. I will talk to you in two weeks. Goodbye. Enjoy the big fight. Did you get what you was looking for?